Hello and welcome back to the Soundworks Collection podcast series. This is Michael Coleman, and in this episode, we return to another panel from the fourth annual Mix Magazine Presents Sound for Film and TV. Uh, this is an all-day conference spotlighting the techniques and technologies behind sound for picture from production to playback. And in this panel, the focus is on mixing, from mic to mix. It's moderated by re-recording mixer Carol Urban, and some of the panelists include sound recordist Steve Thibault, Ed Moskowitz, re-recording mixer Scott Milan, sound editorial assistant and recordist Jesse Erdet, and film editor Steve Rifkin, and supervising dialogue editor Terry Dorman. So in this panel, we hear from production and post-production experts in feature films and TV, and they discuss their specific crafts in production, editing, and re-recording. This panel is great because it really gives you a holistic approach to all the challenges, creative decisions that are made when working on some of these amazing projects. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. I'm going to forget where everybody's sitting, even though I put them in this order specifically, so I'm going to do this. Um, welcome to Mike to Mix. Uh, I think this is a super fabulous and important panel because it talks about the relationships from one department to another. Um, so I'm going to go in through the line here. Um, I've kind of intentionally started with our production guys. If you Production guys. Um, yeah, a picture guy. Picture guy. And we got um, recordist and um, assistant, uh, edit- a sound editorial assistant. Um, and then we've got uh, sound supervision. And we have re-recording mixing. So if, if, yeah, if a project were to start here, it would kind of, it could hypothetically just kind of roll right through here. So um, with that in mind, I'm just going to uh, give you a quick uh, introduction to the fabulous individuals here. I had to take notes because the credit list is long. All right. So we got Stephen Thibault, CAS. He is our production sound mixer, or one of our production sound mixers. Three-time Emmy, five-time CAS award winner. He has experience in both TV and film and actually is a really interesting individual because he also has experience in post-production as well as production. Um, Some notable credits are uh, Modern Family, Little Show, American Pie 2, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, um, amongst many others. Um, Then we have Ed Moskowitz, uh, another production mixer. Um, He has a lot of experience in single camera episodic and multi-cam audience shows. So it's, it's a very interesting combination of of projects. He's also a former president of the Cinema Audio Society, and uh, his past credits may include some of these timeless, timeless shows. The Larry uh, Sanders Show, I loved the Larry Sanders Show. Uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Will and Grace, Criminal Minds. I don't think anybody's really escaped seeing his work, or hearing his work, rather. So (laughs) it's excellent. Uh, Stephen Rivkin, um, ACE, he is our picture editor today. Um, President of the American Cinema Editors, and he is nominated for an Academy Award, a BAFTA Award, an ACE Eddie Award for his work on James Cameron's Avatar. Might have heard of that. He's on the second one now, which is, sounds like a really amazing adventure. Um, he also worked on the Pirates of the Caribbean, or Caribbean, depending, <laughs> films. Uh, he's also uh, did uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, which I know is like not something they told me to mention, but that's like one of my all-time films. Like, can we, can we really like? Uh, seriously, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm really excited about that one. Um, and he also founded the Committee for Creative Recognition and EditorsPetition.com to petition film festivals and critics uh, um, to uh, add film editing to their annual awards. So he's a real proponent for people in his industry and our creative arts. So 
That's really awesome. Um, Jesse Errett, our, he's an assistant sound editor and recordist with both experience in TV and film, uh, which is really awesome and unusual and incredible. It's, I'm so glad that he's here. He's this missing link between production and post, and he does all that wizardry to make sure that we understand what we get and it comes to us in a familiar manner. Um, and he has worked on Transparent, Scandal, Criminal Minds, Lady Dynamite, also Crouching Hi Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and E2 Mama Tambien. I love that movie. It's so good. All right. Uh, Terry Dorman, supervising dialogue editor, 100 feature credits beginning in 1974. I'm so sorry, but I had to, I'm just so impressed. I'm like, <laughs> um, The Deer Hunter, Top Gun, Moneyball, The Da Vinci Code, Pearl Harbor, Deadpool, La La Land, you know, some stuff, you know, some pretty cool stuff here. 30-year Academy member, one of the three governors representing the sound branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So super heavyweight. And as a re-recording mixer, I'm super excited to introduce Mr. Scott Milan. <laughs> Ms. Scott Milan, uh, CAS, nine-time Oscar nominated, four-time Oscar winner, Apollo 13 Gladiator, uh, The Bourne Ultimatum, uh, Ray, uh, he was the 2012 recipient of actually the CAS's highest honor, which is the Career Achievement Award. And he's also governor of the Academy of uh, Motion Pictures and Arts and Sciences for our sound branch. So, you know, these cats, got they have some knowledge, you know? <laughs> I'm really excited. So let's give it a hand for our lovely panelists. If I could start off um, by having you guys kind of go through and talk about your specific function within the workflow, like what you receive, like how things get from the mouth of the actors or performers to the final mix is what we're exploring today. So if I could have you kind of talk about your role in that workflow, what you get and what you pass on to the next person. Okay. Um, initially, I get the script to break down to um, ask myself the question, um, how should this sound? And um, then you put your package together to um, capture that. And that can change from, in my, my case, episode to episode of Modern Family. Because we just shot an episode on a lake. And, and um, I couldn't um, record on the normal um, package. I was in a bag part of the time. I was um, um, on a medium and a small cart to accommodate um, the 13 actors that we had all the time and, and multiple booms. Um, and then when we're on stage, um, it's, I'm on my regular cart with the, the 16 faders and, and uh, the 970s and so forth. But, um, you know, my main thing is to capture the actors' performances. And... Um, Who's the person that you hand it off to? Like, who's the, the person that you hand your, your material off to? Um, at the end of the night, it goes to Gavin, our, our digital imaging tech, and, and um, he will uh, copy off all the files that, that I've created during the day. Mm -hmm. And um, then that ends up getting sent to the um, uh, Telesini house. Okay, is that considered part of the picture editorial or picture department or, or production department? It's considered part of the um, camera department, actually. Oh, wow, okay. And, and Oh, right on. And our department as I, well. I'm post. This is like, as well. <laughs> and I get it on stage. I'm like, oh, nice. All right. That's that's more of a of a recent develop recent the last decade or so, um, when we started doing file based recording and we deliver from production we deliver a set of files 
which goes to the camera department to coordinate. What they do is they download them all, and then their their disk or their hard drive actually goes to post production, and that's when they sync it up to to picture and everything because we're still recording dual system, and that's. The show that Steve's doing, Modern Family for the moment, is basically a single camera show, even though they're shooting on multi -ca multiple cameras. I don't think there's a day that there's less than two cameras. It's called that, yeah. But <laughs> con conceptually, the show is, is visualized as a single camera show. Um, I'm, in a unique I'm in a unique area because I have done single camera shows, traditional single camera shows, uh, procedurals like Criminal Minds in the first season and, and other shows like that. But I also have a great deal of experience in live shows, um, what, you, what we refer to as sitcom and live audience shows, where we're both responsible. Our main job is to record the dialogue, to record clear, crisp, pristine as we can achieve on set dialogue to run down the rest of this chain all the way to the end of the picture or the end of the TV show so it goes to the air. In the case of multi-camera shows, we're recording multi-track. And what we're doing is simultaneously, I'm recording, I'm responsible for recording dialogue on stage. I'm also responsible for feeding that dialogue into a sound reinforcement system for the audience because they are live audience shows even though most of quite often they sound like they're canned. They really are not. The live audience shows are really live audiences because dead audiences don't sound good. Um, so we're responsible for recording the dialogue, responsible for feeding that as a PA system to the house where the audience is sitting. We then are also responsible for recording the laughs. And that, in an, that triad in and of itself sounds like it may not be too difficult, except all of you that have worked anywhere near live performances know the problem of feedback. All of you and all of you in post who have done live audience shows are aware of the fact that if there's too much PA going, you don't have clean dialogue. And it doesn't matter um, if they're, in some cases, radio mic for, for isolation you're still going to hear what's coming off the PA. And so that balance to achieve the live dialogue, the PA feed, and record clean audience tracks is a unique skill. Um, and there is only one real way. Yes, you can teach it. You can instruct people how to do it. But really, you have to experience it to do it because you can overfeed the PA and it screws up everything and you don't have any audience tracks and then in post you wind up having to rebuild everything. What you do you usually deliver to post? Like in that situation like In that situation yeah. we're recording on a multi-track recorder. Okay. Currently we use sound devices 
many play. We used to record on an eight track. Um, when I we went from four track to eight track, and now we're in the multiple multiple eight tracks, which is so. The, how many tracks are you dealing with when you're rolling your material? Normally, um, there are eight tracks typically because what you're recording is dialogue. You're recording effects, whichever effects happen to be used for playback, doorbells, music, door knocks, off-camera screams, any of those kind of effects. You're recording a stereo audience and usually recording a mono audience as a backup. And in the case of most of those audience shows, you wind up taking each of the booms because in those situations, those, unlike on Steve's show where you have the, a, the ability to radio mic everybody for isolation and have ISO tracks pre-fader of everybody. On sitcoms in the live, they want it to be a proscenium show. You're doing a proscenium. What you're doing is both picture and, and sound are recording the live performance for the audience that, you're, that you've got there. That's what, that's what the whole concept of the, the producers is, is that all you're doing is documenting the live production. And so you don't have the advantage of putting radio mics on everybody, typically. So you're doing it with multiple booms. So each of those booms wind up going to their own track. So in some instances, you only have two booms. And more often than not, you have anywhere from f four to six booms per set, depending on the set, because we'll wind up putting them. I did a show years ago called, uh, which was Sybil Shepherd's sitcom named Sybil. We had in her living room, kitchen, um, dining room area, I had three booms on the floor, which were on Fisher pedestals. I had a boom arm that was upstairs, all the way upstage by the piano mm -hmm. in the upside, upstairs stage side of the living room. And in the kitchen, I had two boom arms on the upstage side to be able to get crosses back there. So all of those booms were isolated. And then, of course, they were all in the mix, because the mix is what goes to the house, and the mix is what goes to the dialogue track. And is the mix what you uh, yeah. edit with specifically, Stephen? Is that, is that what you receive when you you typically work with that? Or do you... Uh, oftentimes, when I receive something before a symbol, um, I, I assume it's the the material from the the, the sequence uh, from the editor directly. I'll find some isolated mics and booms cut in based on maybe something that may have happened in production, but typically it's the production track. What what do you get? Um, well, usually the 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 uh, location mixer is going to give provide a like a single track mix. And even though they may have multiple booms, isolated cameras. So that goes to the, uh, the sound house and they uh, transfer it to 35 millimeter mag. And then it comes to the editing room and the assistants mark it up and sync it up with the 35 millimeter picture. Oops, wrong decade. <laughs> I was like, whoa, your workflow is really different than mine. <laughs> um, so we get digital files, obviously, of the picture and the sound. And um, uh, these days, because the Avid is capable of 
carrying all those isolated tracks, usually the assistants will uh, group the audio so we have a master mix and we can uh, pop out individual isolated tracks for characters. Um, and we'll generally work with a mixed track from the production sound mixer, but it, um, Avatar's a little uh, atypical in the sense that every actor has a boom camera and microphone in front of their face. So each actor has an isolated microphone that's devoted to them. The sound mixer on, on the set is doing some kind of you know, live mix, but when you have you know, 10 characters or something, that can get a little complicated. So uh, it's nice to have the ability to uh, be able to, in fact, my assistant started naming the tracks so we can actually, by character name, see in the Avid timeline the individual mics for those characters. So when we need to go to a clean, isolated uh, track for that line, that particular dialogue line, we can get to it quite easily. How uh, much does your team work uh, to create temp effects and concepts that you want to later translate to your re-recording mixer or your super, uh, supervising sound editor? Well, we, we uh, extensively uh, experiment with sound design. And fortunately, on larger shows like this, we have sound editors and designers on at very early stages. So we're constantly being fed a library of effects and sounds and things that we can start incorporating into the edit so that there are no surprises downstream. You know, we, when you work with directors, they're very particular about sound, as they should be. Um, you you want to be able to start doing the research and sound development at as early a stage as you possibly can. Very cool. And so um, when your sound material then, I would imagine, uh, goes from your picture team to the, well, actually, I guess if you're going back and forth between sound designers and sound editors, you probably have a pretty seamless send from your picture department to the sound department. I would imagine it goes to uh, a sound editorial assistant. Right. Well, at a certain point, wherever we are in the design process, using effects that have come from the sound department, the the film will get turned over to sound, and that at that point they will, you know, take it much further than we possibly can. But it, it's a it's a template for uh, sound design, and as I said, usually we have a very early contribution from the sound department and the sound supervisors. So uh, it's evolved over many many months before the film gets to a point where it's actually turned over for sound. So it's. I wouldn't say close, but it's in the vein. There's no major switches typically, I would imagine. Right. Obviously, the, the extent of the stereo backgrounds and specific hard effects are, you know, uh, that I'll say it's a, it's a blueprint mm -hmm. in the sense that it, is, uh, it represents a design, but um, the, the sound editors and designers take it 100% farther towards finish. Very cool. So then it would go to you, I would imagine, Jesse. Yes. Yes. And, and what type of magic do you weave? Um, I like to think uh, my job is mainly a translator <laughs> from the language that production and picture department has to the language that post-production uses. And 
I've worked in several different sound houses and they all have their own specific workflow and naming conventions and editors that are used to it. So it's pretty crucial that I take whatever turnover I'm given, which is usually the production sound dailies, the sound rolls, the um, a quick time of the picture, which for TV is locked, but for film is not. We'll get into the differences between film and TV later. But um, I then tend to rename a lot of these files and make sure that they all work in conjunction with each other and are in a format that can be easily understood by all the sound editors and mixers moving forward. So if there's ever a problem, we can backtrace and find out where the problem lies and troubleshoot and uh, figure out all that kind of. And you're also responsible, I would imagine, for taking the guide track and uh, the production track that he's been cutting. That's probably what gets delivered to you. And then there's the assembly created from all the dailies. And yeah, all, so the, yeah. the exact yeah. turnover I get is um, it's picture guides, um, the EDL, which is from the Avid, explains where everything lies, all by time code, and the production sound rolls, which hopefully I get ahead of time so I can demultiplex them because uh, you guys record them in, as you should, in a uh, multiplexed format, uh, which makes them easier to work with. But the assembly software that I use, which is called Titan, still generates a Pro Tools session in Pro Tools 9. So that can't work with multi-track. Uh, so the files need to be mono if I want it to happen quickly. Uh, Titan can demultiplex them, but that makes the assembly process take about an hour or two. So if I want to do assemblies quickly, having the production rules ahead of time, demultiplexing them, renaming them before I even get the turnover is a big benefit um, in speed. Um, and then, yeah, the I assemble everything all together, um, having the AAF, which I get again from the Avid, and all the production sound dailies under those with all the different ISO mics broken out so that sound editors have a choice. If there's something in the mix track that they don't like or they want to really isolate somebody, um, then they can do that. And they will then choose their mic. And uh, after that portion, you would then take that material and deliver it either, I would imagine, to someone like Terry or her editing staff. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Then I would um, pass along the Pro Tools session with all that material to sound supervisor like Terry or um, all her editorial team. And then they can uh, hit me up for any other little miscellaneous pieces that might come along the way or uh, picture conforms, which happen frequently where uh, you know we have to adjust not just uh, the timeline, but sometimes a whole different shot. So you know you can replace take two with take five or something and it all has to be reassembled and put together in a nice way that can be tracked, is easy to understand, and does not add to the already confusing amount of data that we have to deal with. And speaking oh, of that Are you confusing, telling me uh, there are oh. no picture changes? <laughs> <laughs> lock, we have it, lock, you know, man. It's, <laughs> it's very nice. In TV, sometimes we get lock picture, and it stays because there's a time format for network television. And that's, that's nice. But even then, uh, we've had you know three or four versions of a show come through within a week. So uh, that, that can get a little hairy. I've, I've actually been in the trenches with him on that. Very You've heavy. got something on Monday. Which oh, is really? Changing. Oh, awesome. 
<laughs> Welcome back to the season. Yeah. <laughs> and so when that uh, massive pile of information and all that data is sequenced and correct and together, and it is then dropped to, I, I actually was, I wasn't sure when I was building the kind of timeline here whether I should actually put Terry in front of Jesse or Jesse in front of Terry because actually you kind of start working w while he's working because you start meeting and spotting, correct? That's that. It depends. I, I actually I come on uh, midway through the process. But I think this is fascinating the way you've got this set up because it's showing that each department, each group is interdependent on the other. We cannot function without the other. And it's my constant theory that we are a circle of talent that creates this end product. Um, I certainly am dependent on what Jesse will deliver um, to get the tracks in order. Um, I, normally, I'm on a project for anywhere from five weeks to a year. And if I have the luxury of going through the material, reading through the sound reports, consulting maybe with a production mixer, talking to the editors, and, and getting that kind of information, it gives me more to work with. Um, the idea of when I start a project is to go through and determine if there's a proper mic to be chosen, if I can do anything to improve the quality of the sound. Um, it's a collaborative effort. I depend on production mixer to deliver the sound. I read what's in the sound reports because that's where all the bodies are buried. Um, I also have taken the initiative to meet with production mixers and go to the set, even if I wasn't involved with a project, just to see what you guys are up against. And I'd rather, I'd rather do that and learn the process than sit in the room and go, what were they thinking? Because that's not fair. Well, I have to, I, I, thank you. A, a, a huge, huge thank you. And I will tell you that it's, it is unbelievably critical that that happens. And all through my career, I mean, working in, in episodic television where our schedules are very rapid turnover, we don't have a lot of time to spend to go visit and stuff like that. However, I have always made it a point on every single show that I have done that I connect with post, both with picture editorial and post sound, because there are things that we're up against that, like what you said, that sometimes you, you sit there for hours on end going, just what in the hell were they thinking? You know? and. Are, and, and having that communication, I always start a show that way so that at least there's a channel open. And now with email and, and cell phones, it's a lot easier. Well, I, I wish that it was even more because I wish the production mixers would realize that they can come to us as well, come sit in, you know, in an editing room or go as far as the stage mm -hmm. and see their work because I also try and make it a point at the end of a show to contact a production mixer and say, you guys did good. You should Thank be proud. You. And you should tell your the boom operator or the cable guy or whatever that I paid attention to it. Um, I think that should be promoted all the time. I've had instances, one example of you know meeting a production mixer on a set is I went downtown and 
a friend of mine was doing a show, and the, they were shooting on the roof. And I walked in there, and he said, look what we have to deal with. They didn't tell us that there was gravel on the roof. And he had minutes to, to pad the shoes or do something to, to uh, accommodate that. Yeah. And we don't know this. If you're, yeah. if you're sitting in a cutting room, all you know is, I'm not getting what I want. Mm -hmm. Well, in order to get that, we got to talk. So I, I encourage communication. I've had that experience as well. Um, and and uh, I, I think I've gotten a lot less critical to my production uh, counterparts. Um, because actually the only time that I've actually uh, was introduced to the communication cross-departmentally from post to production um, was through the CAS uh, because it's an organization that takes all mixers and kind of throws them in one pot to fight it out, you know? So we got the production guys, we got the ADR guys, we got Foley cats, we got, you know, the re-recording mixers. But I, I don't have the, the perspective that you do as a supervising sound editor to be closer to that team. Um, and I've learned so it's so valuable to know the environment that these people are in. I'd also have, I'd rather you guys not stress over something that we may have an easy solution, solution to. So, you know, I've had people call me up and say, I, I don't know what to do. I've got, I'm hearing too much feet on the microphone. What are we going to do? And there's, there's a way out of it that we may have. Talk to us and, and vice versa. I'd like to interject something, you know, in regards to this line, I'm the benefactor of, of um, all, everybody else's work. And um, in regards to planning, so infrequently does the production recordist know who's going to be in the final mix. And so, and they're usually off on another project, so we don't have a lot of time to interact. Occasionally, you get a chance to to discuss it as it gets closer to the uh, final mix if there are people are working in town and we're mixing in town. But one thing that happened on a particular film for me, which I thought is brilliant, and I wish every filmmaker would think of doing this, it was actually on uh, <clears throat> Spectre on the last Bond movie. The director specifically had a pre-production meeting where every head of department was there mm -hmm. and went through the script line for line, page for page, concepts that were being vetted to the room as well as what he had perceived doing. So we could ask the questions there. We could actually engage in the conversation, talk about things that might be problematic or concepts of creative choices. If we're going to use a geographical location, how might sound help you sell the space and the timeline and things like that? I wish that was afforded on every film. Obviously, it's not. But we do work in conjunction with each other uh, up here. And at this point, actually, it stops being virtual. Up to this point, anything can be anything. And then we get to this part of the process. And you know, the picture editor and the director will be in the post-production space and the re-recording environment, similar to this. And all those concepts have to be vetted then. Sometimes it's possible. Sometimes it's not possible to achieve. But it's a big responsibility, and unfortunately, because we're at the end of the process, time is usually spent, and the money is spent and gone. Um, <clears throat> just adds a little extra pressure. It is in a unique position, always being at the end of the budget line. Yeah. And physically at the end of the line. I mean, we, we finished a film a couple of weeks ago that actually premiered at TIFF. And it was a really compressed schedule. I think we had, including pre-dubs and the final, it was like 
three and a half weeks of eight reels. It was Aaron Sorkin's film, Molly's Game. Dialogue galore. Dialogue on top of dialogue. Voiceover on top of dialogue. It was very intricate and stylized, which was really interesting. But that takes time. It doesn't just happen. You don't rubber stamp this. And uh, we, we were in a meeting earlier this morning talking with one of our fellow governors, Kevin Collier, who comes from the engineering staff, uh, staff at Warner Brothers. And he said something that was kind of, uh, you take for granted, but the process now, because we have automation and we have um, everything kind of virtual by the time it gets to us, anything can be anything. And we can have, you know, whereas when I first started doing films, actually, when I was doing television and doing production, it was a production track we created. It was a combine in real time. Now we'll have a thousand different places for sound to hit the console at the same time. All of that changing from minute to minute, second to second, it's a lot to comprehend. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to mold. And there's not one way of doing it. Everybody's going to have another, another perspective. And there's no right or wrong. It's a creative process. So it goes through a process to get to us where there's much creative and much technical aspect of getting it there. But ultimately, at the end of the game, it's a piece of artwork. And that takes time. And unfortunately, it's short change because the production sometimes think, well, it can be done. Physically, it can get done. But it doesn't allow for the creative process. And that's one of the shame, shame on us, in a sense, that we haven't been able to communicate. I mean, Steve understands. I mean, there are people who understand this, but it, it's the people who are, who are delegating the time, the resources, the finances don't all understand that process. I'm, I might add, what, you know, I've worked on some films with some pretty compressed schedules. And I think our, our first Pirates of the Caribbean had like a 12-week post on it, yeah. all in. And once you've done it, the studios say, ah, it can be done. <laughs> and then you're in real trouble. You know, in spite of the fact you'll say, I don't think this is possible. I don't think we can do this. And, and then somehow everybody works like crazy and practically drops dead, but you get it done. And then you've kind of set up the problem for the next one that they're going <laughs> to ask somebody to do that on. Yeah, yeah no and, one wants to fail. And it's kind of used against us in a sense. Well, if, if you did it then, we're just going to take 10% off the calendar. <laughs> that happens every day on set, too. We used to get rehearsals. Now we don't. And, you know, wing it. That's yeah, what they're we're always getting asked pushing. to do they're constantly. It. Yeah, we don't have the time. You did 12 pages yesterday. We can do it again. Right. And, with <laughs> St and, and Steve's talking about, like on his show, it is not atypical for him to have 10 actors on the set. And yesterday, yesterday it was 12. Yesterday, okay. Two and, booms and two plants. And he's expected <laughs> to deliver a picture quality mix track to post-production. That's what they expect. And I mean, Steve doesn't... Steve does an excellent job. He does a phenomenal job. And I've worked for Steve on another show, which was modeled after his show, and it's really tough. You know, even when you're, doing, you're used to doing live production, that's really, it's the same thing. It's like doing live television with a cast of 12. And 
we've created our own Frankenstein. I completely agree with you, Scott, because we did pull it off. The interesting, interesting thing about production for me when I was doing it, there was an energy. Everybody has to be at the same energy level at the same time. The actors have to be there. The camera people have to be there. The sound people have to be there. In, con you know, in contrast, now everybody thinks, well, it'll get fixed later. Don't worry about that. We'll cheat that. We weren't able to get the coverage there. We'll find a solution. So it kicks the can down the road mm -hmm. and puts ultimately pressure on, you know, that we wish we didn't have. Right. And even if it's a creative problem-solving situation uh, where perhaps something could have come a solution, an acceptable solution that doesn't hinder, in, in great respect, the creative choices of the, of the film or television show, the time is, is crunched on top of that. Um, I also I, I wanted to kind of interject that even on a macro level, I've noticed that in television, even just talking to many of uh, the multiple people that are on other shows, other than the ones that I have been on, that when your show gets super big and it gets, you know, another season, another season, another season, uh, your budget doesn't get bigger; it gets smaller. They do each year. They they want to contrast it, and it's kind of like this new challenge of, oh well, this year we have this, but you know, you can do it for that, right? And then, and it, it does, it gets closer and closer and closer. Have you found that to be the case though? Because you've worked on a lot of like, I don't know, I wanna call them like legacy films, as have you, Stephen, where it's been like, there, there's like a, like a, like there's three, you know, pirates, you know, there's a, you know, multiple Bond films. <laughs> like, do you, it, when those franchises come back, is it, do you think it's the same kind of tendency? Have you noticed that amongst your peers and amongst your own experience? Well, my, my experience has been that um, a lot of times, because making a film is a very, very risky business financially, and when something succeeds, I think there's a level of confidence that perhaps doesn't exist when you're going out with something original that is unproven in the marketplace. Mood lighting. Are we being booted out or what? Is <laughs> <laughs> our time up? Uh, Did nobody put another quarter in the meter or what? <laughs> But I, I think um, budget-wise, I, I think sometimes maybe unlike TV show, a TV show where they're trying to tighten the budget all the time because maybe the cast wants more money, so they have to make it up in production or something. But I, I think that um, generally, I've been fortunate from the standpoint that I think the budgets are, don't get tighter, and in fact, this, because of studio confidence, they might be willing to spend a little bit more. So. That they might. When they, if they leave the budget the same, do they squeeze the time? Sure. I so mean, there's that's, always... That's how, they, that's how yeah, they say it. That's, yeah, the, right. that's so, the squeeze. Right. So. They're, they're always pushing the envelope in terms of what can we do um, in X number of weeks or months. And, and, and a lot of times, unfortunately, films are greenlit based on release dates. And... Um, come hell or high water, they're going to make that release date. And everybody has to jump to fit in that window. What, what I'm finding, though, is when the budgets are squeezed, I'm working harder now than I've worked before. Because what ends up happening is I end up being the only dialogue editor on the film. Mm. It's like it, it, before, like picture like Pirates, we had the luxury in a sense, yeah. because of the schedule and what it was, and because it was Bruckheimer and everything, I had four dialogue editors. And you can split the work as long as you're consistently 
cutting similarly, it it makes it easy. But now I'm cutting the whole the whole film. That's great when I get to a dub stage and I'm fully aware of every track and everything recorded and every where all the pieces are. But it's a whole lot of work. And that's where the budget it was once it went digital, it was faster, quicker, you can do it. But I'm still doing the same job I always did. Now you're doing the work of four people. Right. And the pressure of the time constraints as well at the very end. Um because there's we're not producing film in most cases. It's a DCP release. Back to Spectre. We finished that film. We, we pre-dubbed it here, went to the UK, and finaled it there with a filmmaker, got on a plane, flew home, landed, went back to a dub stage, and started print mastering here and doing the deliverables. We finished that film, the IMAX format, the last one we did, on Thursday night. That film was released Monday. Should anything go wrong, we're the we're at fault. Wow, wow. A little pressure, you know. Yeah. Um, could I, you I just want to add one thing, and that is this: I hear this so often from uh, picture departments, sound departments, everybody in the creative process, and that is that because we are being pressured to do more in less time, and to do the work of more and more people. I think that there is a tendency, as Scott said, to you don't want to be the one that that fails. Mm -hmm. And at, at the same time, I really think that it's important that we stand up to the producers and the studios and say, we need more people to accomplish this, mm -hmm. or we're going to need, if you want it in this amount of time, then we're going to have to staff up. Um, and a lot of studios, they for some reason, it, I don't know what financial sense it makes to pay people all kinds of overtime to basically work around I the clock. I that too. I'm but, like, that's another day, man. You right, just but it would make sense, day. I think, to just have more personnel. I guess they don't want to carry them, and they'll pay for them when they need them. But to carry all these people makes it incredibly expensive. Well, it carries over in production, too. I mean, we get big episodes, and I say big casts, and each time we have um, the entire cast together, um, I'm able to get an additional boom operator. Um, on one episode a couple of years ago, um, we had seven, and then an, an extra person for um, IFBs. So it can get done when, when, when you need it, and say you need was that, it. Was that the Disney? Um, no, no, that was uh, Connection Lost. It was the, the oh. face FaceTime episode. Right. So we had four sets going at the same time, and we needed extra simultaneously, boom so they can yeah commute yeah. Uh, could you uh, Terry talk a little bit more about the the duties of the supervising sound editor? I I know many of us maybe aren't blessed with having a, a supervising sound editor. Um, I know I'm on projects where oftentimes I have to take part of those duties, and then I'm on other projects where I have a full editor and music editor and you know, mixing counterparts and what a difference and what a gift that is. So if you could talk about more of your duties. Well, you, you want to talk about the supervising sound editor or supervising dialogue APR editor? Well, actually, that, that would be, that's an excellent point, is that on many productions that are larger, there's a, a supervising dialogue editor as well, and it's even more uh, secularized based on the amount of people on the team and the amount of work to be done and, and, and time and budget. When, when I first started, I... Obviously, it was in film, but it, 
it was take a reel, do a reel. It was everything. So it was ah. all sound effects, Foley, backgrounds, ADR, and dialogue. So it's when it went digital that I chose to aim mostly at dialogue only because I enjoyed doing it. I wanted the responsibility. I wanted the puzzle. And um, so I veered in the direction of supervising the dialogue, ADR. I, um, as a dialogue editor, I like to avoid using ADR. Um, uh, as a supervising dialogue editor, getting on a project early, it's the capability of going to, like I said, going through the tracks, discussing with the film editors, patterning, making sure that the, the integrity of the cut is there, um, and searching for the best quality of sound. Um, as far as supervised, as far as being involved in the process, it's the sound designers and the supervising sound editors are in a cutting room. If you have the luxury of being on early enough to be able to clean up tracks and deliver them to the picture department, it makes their job better. It makes their picture sound better. And it, it gets you closer to the end end product um, because there's no secrets, there's no nothing hidden. You're working on perfecting something by the time it gets to the dub stage. And what exactly, um, if you could break it down, do you get delivered on the dub stage? And if you could also uh, talk about your mixing counterparts and how that's kind of separated. Um, well, usually we work as a two-person team, on occasion three. It used to be always three, but again, the console's automation has allowed us to shorten the size or make smaller the size of the crews. Um, I have someone who I work with, I usually handle the dialogue and the music, and then we'll have someone who is on the effects. I'll be responsible for all the ADR production recordings, group recordings, um, and then whatever comes in score-wise. And depending on the film, that's a wild card as well. The last film we did do, you know, the score came in unmixed down because they didn't have the time. It was a hundred tracks of music. Wow. So during the final, trying to maybe mix some down OT the on that one, yeah. <laughs> Barely, you know, oh just God. a lot of. Um, I went like, well, on the second week, my back went into spasm, and so it was a uh, it was physically um, challenging in many ways. But um, it just happens again until we fail, and none of us will allow that to happen. You know, it's not just ego. It's it's the pride we have in what we do. We won't fail the project. So we're own, our own worst enemies in a way. But um, so we work as a team. Um, hopefully, people have had a chance to pre-dub the content. Sometimes that doesn't even happen. So you're kind of flushing out raw tracks that come to us if it's a tight budget and tight uh, um, financially. The constraints are budgetarily pushing us that direction. You obviously don't get the best work possible. Um, it, creative process just takes time. It would be like trying to cut a film in a, two weeks or something. How would you know what the best performances are? How would you be able to experiment? And the experimentation is where really we get a chance to create a piece. It's not you know a minute by minute scenario. It's not a scene by scene scenario. When a film's done or a TV show, you should be able to look back at it as a whole and it just works. And you're not thinking about how it technically got done. 
Um, and a filmmaker needs time to digest an experiment. And we, you know, if we don't have physically the time on the stage, it becomes more of an assembly of sorts. And here are the pieces, put it together in some form, and is that acceptable or not? And it's the worst thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a. I always say that I might that our our job the uh, the re-recording mixing. I, I have like the best video game for a job that anyone could possibly imagine. Like I absolutely love it. But but that play is the experimentation, and it's a super buzz kill when it gets cut for time. Yeah. I, years ago, I mixed a film across the hall in the Holden Theater. It was called Road to Perdition. And it's a film in a, in a track I really love, Tom Newman's score. But there was a particular sequence in the film. And the director's not in the room, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Sam is great. And he's really a creative individual. Technology is not his thing, but he's wickedly smart. And you can explain whether it be visual effects, picture editorial, sound, sound editorial, composition to him one time and he grasps it and uses the terminology and he can voice his interest in trying things properly in the proper context. On that particular film, the, really the last thing that we had to solve was the scene um, where Paul Newman and Tom Hanks meet on the street. It's very near the end of the film and Tom Hanks' character kills in close proximity, very coldly kills this man who was his adoptive father in a sense. So we were going back and forth, back and forth, all through the temp dubs multiple times, through the final multiple times, experimenting with how to deal with it because it was on the, it was a, uh, it was shot on the back street at Warner Brothers and it was beautifully lit in uh, lit Conrad Hall shot it. And um, there was, Paul Newman was near a car he was going to get into, and Tom Hanks is way down the street. And all of a sudden, in the distance, gunshots happen, and people, the, the bodyguards, Paul Newman's bodyguards, are killed and just left with Paul and Tom on the, on the street at close range when he walks down. So we tried every combination of how to make this work emotionally. And it was like the last big choice and decision creatively. And it was like 6.45 one evening and Sam was still having trouble trying to figure it out. And we had tried all these different things. And I said, Sam, what if we just take everything out? Let's just go with music. It's very operatic the way it's shot. The camera goes up high and you see the guys go across the street. You know what's gonna happen next, the next scene, because they tell you the scene before that it's gonna be the showdown. And um, I said, don't play anything. And then we'll just do a score. And when they get close together, dialogue will come back. We'll bring the rain in gently. And when he pulls the trigger at close range and kills his adoptive father, the strength of those gunshots, everything else can be done. Mind, in a sense, we knew what was happening. And he looked at me like I said, you're a Martian. And he said, uh, let's wrap for the day. So <laughs> we went home and we all went home. And I usually, I had a long commute, so I'd get here early. And I walked in on the stage the next morning and he's sitting in, in the room. So Sam, what are you doing there? Because he would never show up that early. He looked at me, he said, do it. And he walked out of the room. <laughs> but that takes time. It just, it's exploration and it's, you do it together. It's no one vision. It's so fun. 
it, it, it's, I, I find too that I'm often surprised um, by things that I may suggest that totally didn't work or things that I suggested that totally did or, or, or things that people suggest to me that I'm like, for real? All right, let's try it. And then I'm like, oh, oh okay. It's fantastic. It's a, it's a lovely game. Uh, um, if you could, uh, Jesse, you talked uh, one, a little bit about your uh, position as a um, uh, sound uh, assistant, a sound editorial assistant. But Jesse also um, does two things. Um, or, well, actually, he does many things, but two things that we're discussing today. Um, he, he also works as a recordist. Um, so if you could talk about how that fits into the workflow and the function that that uh, that 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 helps us with in this process. Sure. Uh, if I could sit in two places at once, I would sit here between. <laughs> yeah, I was really conflicted about that order. I yeah. Know. Well, but anyway, um, so as a, a mix recordist, uh, I'm really in charge of getting all of the elements from the editors and everything that that are completed, edited, and everything, and putting them on the mix stage. Uh, mapping out the uh, ins and outs, making sure that the stems are recorded the way we need to record them, and uh, just making sure that everything works well. Um, in a sense, both of my jobs are very technical, but they allow for the, like I'm sure you have, an, you have a picture assistant as well, but it's a very creative process, and, and the time that you're alluding to is is very important, and I try to make sure that I take care of all this technical stuff and make sure that it's working properly so they don't have to think about it. They're just more concerned with the final picture, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and that it's a it's a you know a masterpiece if we can if we can get there. But um, yeah that's I mean I, I set up the mix stage. I if uh, I was with you in that last story I would have been here probably an hour before you showed up <laughs> and uh, making sure the mix is ready and then I typically am there a half hour afterwards, making sure everything's backed up properly and we don't lose any of all that wonderful work we did all day. Um, so that's... It's an incredible overview. And if I, if I could get on a, a soapbox for just a few seconds, um, I, I would like to uh, give mad props and respect to the recordist and the assistants. Um, many times I've uh, passingly heard uh, of the position of an assistant or a recordist as being a junior position to another position. And while it's true that many people move through that process, there are for real on assistants and for real on professional recordists. It is a different position and a different function and it is to be respected and it is uh, an art of uh, creative problem solving and uh, managing data that is is really incredible. Um, in Thanks, fact, Carol. Um, yeah, absolutely. Much respect, man. <laughs> uh, and and with that, um, if you don't mind, Scott, talking about kind of how you interact, uh, perhaps with your recordist and maybe your editor, your stage editors, your music editors, the other people on stage that help you to get your process complete. Um. Yeah, I would second the you know, the um, uh, respect for our stage tech, mix tech. Um, we literally wouldn't be able to roll. We wouldn't be able to work if we didn't have someone in that capacity. Um, it used to be you could go into a, a mix stage and there was a patch bay. It was pretty straightforward how you would get content from a playback unit onto a console. Um, 
and you could go and experiment. You could spend time and work on things on your own. You can't do that now. There's no way I would not be able to punch in once a day if, if there wasn't someone in that capacity. It's vitally important to our process. The expectations are greater and greater on that individual as well because often they're doing things because they can, crash downs and deliverables as we're still mixing the movie. We're on reel six, they're doing deliverables on reel one. So um, this whole workflow would not happen without people like I that. I think there's something also to be said about the stage editors working with the mixers because I, I like the concept of it, it's transferring of, of information and, and your material in such a way that it makes what I do would make Scott's job easier. The idea of sitting on a stage and making sure that I'm listening to what's happening and thinking ahead because what I like to develop is like a tunnel communication. Or I didn't even have to talk to him. But I can say the fix is on track two and three because I've been paying attention to what the editor is asking for, what the director is asking for, and the whole layout. Through, through the process of pre-dubbing material, there's, there's a collaboration going on between the stage editor and the mixer that's invaluable if they gel because um, I don't have to talk. He just knows I'm paying attention. And sometimes when you're working with people over and over again, they'll know how you work even before they show up. They'll have the content set up in a way that makes sense to you. And reel to reel, it's the same. So it's an oversight. It's not, well, this reel was done by X, and this was Y, and this was Z. So every time it comes to the stage, it's going to be laid out differently in a different kind of concept of how to approach the material. Again, with time constraints, whatever we can do to support each other is, you know, it's the only way to survive. Um, I'd just like to say that, I'm, first of all, I'm very happy to be here representing Picture. And the Picture Department is, most of the time, the one department that's on from the very beginning to the very end. And so it's appropriate that I'm right in the middle here, but <laughs> I'd be standing behind each one of you in reality. And my hat's off to the production recordists. And since this is about from mic to mix, we're talking about dialogue, aside from the monumental contribution of sound effects and music in a feature film, I think we're talking about dialogue. My hat's off to the original sound recording of the dialogue and to the people that manage the data, to people like Terry who work with picture editorial to try to uh, give the best version of a performance that's available that was recorded and to people like Scott who you know are the the, the final uh, fix so to speak to take things that might uh, in some in some uh, for some people might be not salvageable uh, there are very few actors and directors that like ADR uh, that don't appreciate the organic nature of a performance given on the day. And to save that and to preserve it and to try to uh, deliver it to the screen, I think, is the objective. And I know Terry's done miraculous work with, with taking syllables and, you know, where there's a noise on a syllable and going to alternate takes and salvaging things. 
sometimes undetectable to even the people that have been living with this dialogue, but now there's a clean version. And to, you know, Scott, to pull out all the bells and whistles to try and, you know, equalize something or some background noise or something else. So my hat's off to the entire crew from beginning to end for helping to deliver the, the organic performance to the screen, and sometimes even better. But uh, it's, it's an amazing process, and everybody, everybody here plays a valuable part in it. One group of people that weren't mentioned were really the boom operators, though. And uh, hats off to them. And utility, If they don't really. do a great job, then we don't get good tracks. And, and uh, you know, the best boy of our department, too, which is the utility for managing all the wires, all, all, all the booms, and then second booming. So, um, yeah, hats off to them, too. Because yeah. if they don't feed it to us... We can't, we can't put it down clean to feed it to you to keep going down the line. So even though um, I did this little, you know, try to do a chain of events here where it would start and end, um, it, it's true uh, what Terry said about how it's really a circle. Um, so uh, uh, just to kind of show a hands really quick, how many of you have actually on productions gotten to know your either production mixer or your post counterpart and have had communication back and forth. Excellent, right? That's pretty fantastic. So um, as production people, um, what kind of stuff do you get tapped for? Like, what are these after calls like? What happened? <laughs> yeah, what happened, man? <laughs> I totally pantsed you. No, no. Well, some, sometimes it's that, and, and, and sometimes it's, hey, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, or, or they're just confused. Um, <laughs> you know, we had, we had a situation last year um, where at the, the location, the, just the wires weren't working well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it had to be all booms, and, and that was the exact call. And, and, you know, we worked it all day, but um, our, our, our sound editor wanted um, one line off the wire, and she goes, I had hits there. And I was like, you don't know what I was dealing with. Oh. Half the wires at that location, uh, they just weren't working. I was just getting hammered. So, you know, uh, it's, it's all on boom, so. <laughs> I also want to echo the concern and discussion that you guys are going to hear in the industry, I'm sure, about the RF frequency situation with uh, production mixers. It is deadly. It is. It's a and thing. it is only getting worse. I have, I've heard one story so far. All of you are aware of the, the FCC Spectrum auction where they've sold off a chunk of our, our RF available space to Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T which is not supposed to go into effect in theory until two years from now, but they are allowed to start testing their equipment, their new equipment now. And, and they've already a, started. And they have started. <laughs> there is a story that happened in, on Broadway um, two months ago where there was one production that about 45 minutes before Curtain, and it was a, mus it was a, a Broadway musical, about 45 minutes before Curtain, all of the RFs went to hell, and they couldn't figure out what happened, they, and everybody stopped for a moment. Fortunately, that theater and that show has an RF coordinator on the show, 
And he started looking. That poor man. Real woman. <laughs> really, because what happened was T-Mobile, I didn't say that well, one of the, one of the purchasers decided to, <laughs> decided to test one of their new, one of their new pieces of, of transmission gear. And they were in an adjacent building to the theater on Broadway. And they switched it on 45 minutes before the curtain. And all of a sudden, they just went and wiped out all of the radio mics on this Broadway production. And for those of you who enjoy Broadway musicals or any stage musicals, you know that all those actors are miked individually. And it just went to hell. They were able to contact the source of the problem and they were able to convince them to turn off their test and let them finish the performance for the next five hours until they went back into the test mode. And that's what we're going to start experiencing all across I the I really country. wish I had a tape of that phone call. That would be amazing. So, but it's Hamilton. And, like, and, I don't even and, know. I don't know, what the, I don't know what it was on Broadway. I'm, and, yeah. and the outcome of that Book is of people like Steve, people like me, who are, and all of, our, all of us production mixers who carry anywhere from six to 15 or 20 radio mics daily and have to do all of that frequency coordination, all of a sudden, because you don't hear it, you don't know it's coming, all of a sudden it just goes like that, and that was the greatest take that they did, and they, they just want to move on. And you go, but I, I didn't get it because there was an RF problem. What do you mean there was an RF problem? <laughs> and then what happens, the next call is, from downstream. Ah, I laid down, yeah. What the hell happened yesterday? And I'm like, well, I, honestly, that that's been the thing that I, I tell you, getting to and know that's my production why our communication people. is so <laughs> critical because change the world. Can, we can yeah. put it on the reports. You don't necessarily see the reports in enough time to know that you've got something coming to deal with. You know. I'm gonna open. Up, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, did you want that? I, I was just gonna say that you know if. If I encounter a scene that's uh, particularly challenging, I always give uh, bo both um, our, our co-producer uh, mm -hmm. um, in, in post um, a call, let her, let her know, mm -hmm. scene number, what, and, and what ultimately I think the fix is. I, and, when and I, I get give those Dina notes, call, it really helps me. the re-recording mixer, and let me give you a list of things yeah. that you're going to need to fix on this. We're going to open it up for questions. Open up for questions. <laughs> and, yeah, real interesting there. Um, right now, over in the Streisand scoring stage is the RF frequency spectrum panel. And um, I got an email three days ago from Howard Fine, who is the Southern California FCC guy. So he's over there. If you want to go talk to him, he's right over there. Talk. Um, but he's here, and he just met with all the people. He said last night he was at Staples at a concert, and the mics dropped out continually throughout the concert. So it is It's beyond. And the touring... Production, all kinds of worlds. So we have time for about two questions. I'm sorry we ran a little late. Whoever's up with their hand first gets it. Um, I'm just curious, with all of the you know file transferring from one team to another, um, I'm just curious about kind of general volume output settings that you're sending to each person and who is you know like if someone applies a certain EQ early down the chain and or a compression that's just not working later on. How does that all? get fixed up and in terms of the input of the recording, how hot are the levels that you guys are working with? Do you use any limiting or compression or anything out the gate? I will EQ a little bit, 
to ma match my wires to the boom. Um, and that's just set and forget per, per, per actor. Um, and then as far as uh, any, any limiting, I'll put a, a brick wall so I don't hit that digital thing, but not generally much of an issue. Um, you said you set your gain right. And that's usually, that's, I'll agree with Steve, that's usually an SOP for most production sound mixers. So we don't try to do anything to the tracks and try to keep them as clean as possible. Just EQ, if we feel it's necessary, just to match the boom to the lav so that there's so that we can transition smoothly without you hearing it and then a brick wall out here to catch it and that's about it in, po in post-production i would prefer uh, that there isn't a lot of processing done and that there are proper levels achieved even though they're digital uh, raising those levels up there is an artifact um, I have had uh, scenarios where the production recorders was trying to help and did a lot of low frequency roll off. And when it got into the stage, it was like AM radio. And you, it's hard to get back what you never had. So, you know, from, from my perspective, just trying to capture getting the mic in the right place, trying to capture the performance as best they can, is, that helps me. And, and uh, I love booms. You know, so I mean, here, here. Yeah, I just wanted to add, like, sometimes the picture department will EQ and add reverb and stuff to make the picture play better for, you know, the cut. And whenever I get the material, I typically remove all that stuff before I give it to the editors. They have it in a guide track so they can hear what the intention was originally, but their actual tracks are clean and back to the original recordings that were done on set. I second or third that I'd, I'd rather have the raw material because that's what I'm going to deliver. Hi. Uh, so you've been talking about the time crunch, which is the money crunch, which is the creative crunch. All, you know, we all work inside of that. And, you know, ultimately, it, we don't want to fail and we don't. So if, like, who's in charge of that? Are there the producers, if they were here listening to that? How would they answer, you know, or or the managers, or like, does anybody know? Does anybody here know? Like, who are they? Well, <laughs> are, they I mean, just it, say it's the producers. Oh, yeah. yeah, and what would they answer? And it's how I you mean, frame it. Yeah, they say um, you have computers now. You can do it faster, and you know. No, no, I, I know how it's. I, yeah, I mean, I know how that's framed, but what's the real answer? Like, how can we move forward so that we're not? So it's better. So we can I get more creative I think the structure time. changes, does it not, guys? I, I mean, I it, feel it show does. Show, yeah, sure. show to show, project to project, it film to film. It changes yeah. constantly, and it is about communication, which, which is what we are yeah. all in the business of. And it starts with pre-production meetings. And for us in TV, in the daily grind, weekly grind of episodic TV stuff, those production meetings when they're sitting there conceptualizing what they want to do, it's really critical that we are there as rep that we are represented in those meetings so that we can voice our opinions and say, look guys, you're getting a little bit unrealistic. You really have to think about what you're doing. We have to present that. And all of us here who want to collaborate, which is, is great, we all have to remind them that at the end of the day, there is not one name on that credit. There are t 
tons of names on that credit, and we're all working for the same project. We really do have the same goal at the end of the day, and that's to create this near-perfect, if not perfect, production. But the, the, the producers are also in a bind because they are trying to get a show greenlit for a number, and that number may be unrealistic. And they know if, if they... I had a director once said, we're getting the studio a little bit pregnant. <laughs> and what that means is essentially once they're invested and they see that they have something they like, then they know, the producers know they can go back and they can squeeze another whatever that dollar is out. But they're in a bind as well because they're trying to get their show made, whether it's a TV show or a feature. And it's a game that they're playing and we're in the game and we have to, uh, unfortunately, sometimes be the bearer of bad news and saying, we can't make this unless we add X number of personnel, which means that that number, whatever it was that they're trying to make the thing for, goes up. And they have to go back to the well. So uh, who do you go to? Who's in charge? I mean, ultimately, it's who's ever financing. But the producers are caught in the middle playing this game. Not that I sympathize with them too much. You know, I mean, the, the idea is <laughs> it's providing the creative sandbox so to speak that we all play in but somebody's somebody owns the sandbox and and that's the way it is and when you get down to this side of the the room the vice gets really tight <laughs> because tight. everybody else has spent the money we try not the, to spend it all <laughs> <laughs> we try um, yeah and you know for us also that we have someone called a post-production supervisor and that's basically our point person the producers really usually aren't involved unless we do a playback and they're there for creative purposes. But, um, and that individual, you know, we're better served if they understand the process. They're usually the most stressed one in the room too because they got to deliver that budget over. <laughs> um, thank you guys so much for attending uh, this panel. And I, I want to really commend you guys for um, uh, showing interest and observing information across departments. So I really want to encourage everyone today to look at something outside of their particular realm. It can really benefit what you do. Uh, check out the RF uh, technology. Uh, it's happening right now if you want to uh, swing by and take a look at that and uh, at the Streisand Theater. And uh, later on, there'll be a technology panel right here at 3.30. Um, have fun, guys. Thank you so much. And, um, thank you to our panelists, thank you. And thank our you amazing to the panelists. Cinema Audio Society, Carol, and the panel. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>